This morning, um, I want to talk to you about a sin that is the root cause of all kinds of division within the church. Um, this sin is rooted in the way that we make distinctions between one another and the, in the preferences that we have that the devil uses as a tool to split God's people. This is the sin of partiality. Now, considering our preferences, our traditions, our practices, there's really nothing inherently wrong with having an affinity towards one or the other. The problem arises when we hold our traditions, practices, and preferences as being more important than the traditions, practices, and preferences of others. As a result, we plant the seeds of partiality. And when we hold our traditions, practices, and preferences over others, then we sow the sin of partiality. And when we reach a point of irreconcilable division, we reap the sin of partiality. And within the body of Christ, we are at that point. This Sunday, is on the Southern Baptist calendar, is Racial Reconciliation Sunday. There will be many SBC churches across our country talking on this very topic of racial reconciliation this morning. The reason I chose to focus on the sin of partiality is because the sin of partiality underlies the sin of racism. It is our preference for racial and ethnic heritage over the racial and ethnic heritage of others that plants the seed of partiality. But this morning, I don't want to just focus on the racial aspect of partiality. I also want to expand and look at the other way that w- other ways that we divide as believers. I want us to understand the reality of the sin of partiality and what it looks like. And then I want to focus on what we can do about it. Before we get to our text this morning, I want to uh, take a look at the hist- a brief history, a bit of history, of the Southern Baptist Convention in the area of racial tension and racial reconciliation. Going back to the 1800s, the Baptists in the United States were divided over the issue of slavery. Uh, churches in the South wanted slavery to be a non-issue, and the churches in the North, which tended to be a bit more progressive, saw slavery as a moral issue that needed to be addressed by believers. So, in 1845, the churches were divided over whether a slave owner could serve as a missionary. And the churches in the South were, and their representatives were uh, determined to create a new cooperation of Baptist churches called the Southern Baptist Convention. Fast forward to 150 years, to 1995, and the 1995 convention, they voted to adopt a resolution on racial reconciliation. This reconciliation offered an apology for the racist roots and condoning and perpetuating racism and committed to eradicating racism in all forms in Southern Baptist life and ministry. In 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention acknowledged that slavery was wrong. One of the conclusions was that racism profoundly distorts Christian morality. 
Now, some of you might be wondering, why would the Southern Baptist Convention need to address racism in 1995? Well, let's take a trip back one year into 1994. Amy and I had the opportunity to move to Texas with our family, and I had an opportunity to attend a, an event by Promise Keepers. Some of you may recall that Promise Keepers was a men's movement in which it encouraged men to be good fathers and, and good husbands and to glorify God and to get into God's Word and study His Word and uh, have sexual integrity. And this issue of racial reconciliation. And I remember as I went to this meeting, it was in an open-air stadium, there was a huge storm that blew in. It was an open-air stadium in Denton, Texas, and uh, it was a monster storm. You know, they say that everything is bigger in Texas. Well, the storms are certainly bigger in Texas. And so to this uh, person from the northwest it was quite the experience they moved us all into the gymnasium and um, the storm passed over and then they moved us back into um, the the stadium and actually one of the sound towers that was set up for this event like one of those giant sound towers that you see at concerts had been completely blown over and the um the leaders of that said the pastors had gotten together and said okay lord you have our attention you've interrupted our what we plan to do what is it that you want us to focus on and they decided uh based on that that prayer and, and coming together that the issue that was at hand was racial reconciliation and what happened next will be forever etched in my my memory fully a third of the people in that stadium who had just gone through this incredible storm and waded through that got up and left. So you see, in 1994, racism in the church was still a significant problem. And in the last 28 years, we've had mixed success in dealing with the issue of racial and ethnic partiality. Some other events from uh, Southern Baptist history since then. In 2009, the Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention released a report on ethnic churches and ethnic church leaders. It focused on how they could be more actively involved in serving the needs of the Southern Baptist Convention at a national level. And though many Southern Baptist uh, resolutions going back to 1961 expressing the desire to see greater ethnic involvement the resolutions were actually inconsistent with the outcome in 2012 the southern baptists elected fred luter the first african-american to hold that position of president of the convention so that's a positive thing in 2015 the southern baptist convention had another resolution with regard to racial reconciliation in 2020 ronald slade was elected as the first african-american chairman of the southern baptist convention's executive committee and many have previously thought that racial reconciliation was an issue of the past many have thought that that, that we have put to bed the scourge of racism and yet Regardless of where you fall on the political perspective, it's hard to deny that the past few years have not revealed racial t 
tension and division that continues to exist in daily life. Now you might be thinking, but how does this apply to Richland Baptist Church? Look around. We, we have people who are participating in our, from different ethnic backgrounds in our church life. And you would be right. In fact, uh, one of the things that I would commend Richland Baptist Church for is that very fact. If, as you go around the Northwest, you discover that many of the churches are very segregated along ethnic lines. So, uh, this morning, we have a representation of ethnic diversity. And so that's, I'm thankful for that. And yet there's a couple challenges. As we look at the diversity in our own congregation, it is actually nowhere near representing the diversity that exists within our community. And also, secondly, I'm sad to say that the, that the racial animus does continue within our own congregation. I thought about how I might share this with you. And while I don't want to show the underside of the church, I feel that it's important that based on conversations that I've had, conversations that Scott has had, conversations that Travis has had, conversations that previous staff members have had, that racial animus continues to be an issue in, within our own body. Now, I'm not going to go into more detail from the pulpit this morning, but the issue continues to be a problem within Richland Baptist Church. And so with that, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcised called by those the circumcised which is done in the flesh by human hands at without christ excluded from the citizenship of israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made no, of, of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he may create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this passage to you. We lift up this message to you. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning. 
You would guide us into your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the sin of racism is rooted in the sin of partiality. And while the occasion for this this morning's sermon is Racial Reconciliation Sunday, my hope is to look beyond just racial animus to other ways that we can uh, commit the sin of partiality and division and favoritism. So uh, to get us into this, let's look at the reality that God does not show partiality. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. In Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7, we read, And now may the terror of the Lord be upon you. Watch what you do. For there is no injustice or partiality or taking of bribes with the Lord our God. And in Job chapter 34, verse 19, we read, God is not partial to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In short, God does not show partiality. So as you can see from these verses that partiality is not a trait of God. He is perfectly just in all of his dealings with mankind. All are alike before God. The distinctions of ethnicity lose their meaning before our glorious God. And before God is a level playing field with regard to racial and ethnic heritage. The early church, uh, God in the early church, God established that partiality was not to be a part of the body of Christ, his church. We read in Acts chapter 10 starting with verse 27 and while talking with him he went and found a large gathering of people and Peter said to them you know it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit with a foreigner but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean that is why I came without any objection when I was sent for so that I may ask why you sent me And then skipping to verse 34, it says, uh, Peter says, Now truly I understand that God does not show favoritism, but in every nation the person who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. And then in Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 7, it reads, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up to them and said, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by, the mouth of, by my mouth, Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So God established that partiality was not to be a part of the body of Christ. And so you can see very early it is God's intention to bring people, all people together without regard to nationality or ethnicity into the kingdom of God. And further, it is the sin of partiality that stands in the way of the unity that God desires in His church to represent and fulfill as a testimony to the world. This division of, of racial and ethnic partiality gets in the way of that testimony. 
The first thing that I want to call attention to in our passage that we're covering in Ephesians 2 is that Paul is addressing Gentiles that were once separate from Christ. In dealing with partiality, we often do this or ought to do the same. And when we look upon our own practices as being something special, we are in danger of being puffed up with religious pride. We can fall into dead works religion. And, and one of the ways that we do this is we begin down this pathway of partiality. Much of the New Testament focuses on the partiality that the Jews had for the Israelites. So much so that, that Christian Jews wanted non-Jews to become Jew before they could join the church. We learn that this sin of partiality goes both ways. In the same way that Jews having a favorable view of their ethnic heritage and a superior view of their ethnic heritage committed the sin of partiality, that Gentiles could be equally guilty for doing the same thing in the other direction. This has an application for our present time. We see much of the focus of racial reconciliation in our country has had the focus on the ills that have been brought by the actions of white people. And let me just say, we need to acknowledge those things, that part of our history. After all, if we fail to acknowledge history, we are doomed to repeat it. That being said, there is a strong movement called cultural Marxism that seeks to undo past evils through partiality. In this, race becomes a factor by which societal benefits are bestowed. It is at its heart a desire to seek justice in, in areas of injustice that occur over centuries and millennia and while we we want we agree that we want justice done in these manners committing the sin of partiality to overcome the sin of partiality is doomed from the start I think we see some fruits from this justice movement in, in that the racial tensions that now exist, in my estimation, are as high, if not higher, than they have ever been at any point in my life. I'm reminded by something that I learned from my parents. It says, two wrongs don't make a right. But in this case, we see how two wrongs can lead to a greater wrong. But let's be honest. The blame game doesn't work either. In fact, the blame game is just an extension of the sin of partiality. One group blames another group for the ills of everybody. This denigration of people who differ from you is the ugly side of partiality. And it is destructive to church life. Let me take a moment to just expand this picture of how partiality can ultimately destroy a church. Tradition is a huge way that churches fall into the sin of partiality. Uh, there are particular practices that have become a part of church culture. 
There's activities and practices that have more to do with where you grew up or when you grew up or whether you grew up in the church or outside of the church. These traditions really do have a value to bring unity, people together in unity. However, it is this unity of tradition is rooted in man-made or man-initiated action. Over time, there is a danger in making the tradition more important than God's Word. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 7, verses 6-9. through He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He, said to the, he also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. When we show partiality towards traditions uh, and, and we put down the traditions of others as being immoral, ungodly, we commit the sin of partiality. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we ought to compromise the teaching of God's word for the sake of accommodation of the world. In fact, I'm saying quite the opposite. We ought to reject the ways of the world and man-made tradition as having authority over God and his word. That being said, we need to be very cautious that we take our own tradition, our own culture, and make the error of saying that our way is the best way and then use God's word to justify this unholy partiality. What are some examples of this impartiality or partiality in church life today? We, we already talked about um, racism. Um, music preference is a huge area of partiality. There's nothing unholy about music preferences. If the music glorifies God, communicates the deep truths of our faith, and leads people into worshiping our Lord and Savior, and the lyrics are theologically sound. Not all music does this. But often, preference becomes partiality when we discuss which instruments are used, what manner in which the song is sung or played, or at times, even who wrote the song becomes an issue of partiality. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we sing Living on, the prayer, on a Prayer by Bon Jovi just because I like the song and it has the word prayer in it. By the way, uh, Amy shared with me this week that uh, Bon Jovi is at least three quarters of the way there by now. And if you laughed at that, you probably grew up in the 90s or, knew, or 80s and somebody knew somebody who grew up in the 80s, so... Um, we also have partiality in terms of teaching styles. You know, I am thankful that we have wonderfully gifted teachers in our midst. Amen? Amen. And we have preferences in this regard. And my hope is, to a certain extent, that you can find a life group that you can be a part of that fits your preference. I would love to see more people engaged and, and doing life together. That being said, 
Let's not fall into the sin of partiality in which we take a stand as one way of doing life group is the right way and the other way, another way of doing the life group is the wrong way. We also have partiality of social and financial status. In James chapter uh, 2, starting with verse 1, we read, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit, over, sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you've dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good, the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit the sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We also have generational partiality. This is a particular problem at RBC. For a long time, those in the older generation have held on to traditions and practices that conform to their particular preferences. Now, there's nothing wrong with that fact. In fact, I appreciate some of the traditions and practices that we have here at RBC. That being said, the sin of partiality rears its ugly head when we say that our preferences are more reverent, more godly, or more holy than others' preferences. We commit the sin of partiality when we block others from having an opportunity to develop new traditions and practices. Brothers and sisters, we lie to ourselves when we say that we want to be around for the next generation and at the same time refuse to take a hard look at the traditions and practices that are barriers to a younger generation. This can be done without compromising biblical truth. Young people, you're not off the hook. When you hold your new ways of doing church above honoring the rich legacy that, that exists here at RBC, you can easily fall into the sin of partiality as well. There is nothing wrong with preferences. But when we, young or old, hold our preferences over others, we are in danger of partiality. So what is the answer to this? How do we resolve partiality? I want to return to our text, Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 12. And I want to draw attention to the atoning work of Jesus Christ that brings us near to one another. We read there, 
At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, it, it is in our nature as human beings to pit one against another. And, and this conflict has existed throughout throughout human history the divide exists that makes one group hostile to another group and when this flourishes we develop this it cultivates this partiality now in the case of the followers of Christ who had a rebellious uh, were rebellious against God and partial with regard to the, the preferences and the people who were like them they have been brought near And there's a phrase in there, by the blood of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we read, He entered the most holy place for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, who is it that Christ has obtained eternal redemption for? In our text, this message that Jesus has obtained eternal redemption for is the Gentiles who have been drawn drawn near. Now in our time, Christ has obtained eternal redemption for those who have placed their faith in Him. Because of this work, we have peace with God and look forward to an eternal destination with God in heaven. Continuing on with verse 14. For He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in His flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that He might create in Himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this that He might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross which He put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and the peace to those who were near. And so out of this foundation of redemption and peace, God continues the sanctifying work of bringing down hostility that was there in times past. Tearing down the hostility, He has made both groups one. A new man from the two reconciled God reconciled to God in one body. These are radical terms of unity. It is the type of unity that occurs when believers live and order their lives in alignment with God's plan and purpose for their lives. You see, the good news of Christ is the unifying principle in their lives. And it is the unifying principle for the body of Christ, which is His church. When we make a choice to live in community with each other, according to the faith that we find in the Gospel, this unity not only becomes a possibility, but is actually a living reality. And the Holy Spirit gives us access to our Heavenly Father. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, we read, In Him we have the boldness and confidence accessed through faith in Him. With this work, we become members of God's household. 
often as Christians, we use family language. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is God's household. Can you imagine how much grief when we squabble and fall into the sin of partiality with each other? Families that are divided and estranged from one another are not a blessing. How much more cause of grief when members of God's household fall into grave disunity. On the other hand, how much we are a blessing to God when we live in a way that is honorable, compassionate, and loving toward one another. In Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in, in humility consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Can you imagine what our lives together would look like if we lived with this attitude fully in church life? What glory, what blessing, what hope, what healing, what transformation when we grow together, becoming the very temple of God's dwelling place, when the Spirit of God in His fullness in our hearts, in our midst, brothers, sisters, we do this together or we don't do it at all. This is the mark of what it means to be a church, that we love one another with no hint of partiality. Partiality occurs when we place ourselves, in summary then, partiality occurs when we place ourselves our, our, and those that we have the greatest affinity towards ahead of God and ahead of others. When our practices and traditions and our preferences become more important than the practices, traditions, and pre uh, preferences of others when it becomes more important than obeying God, when it becomes more important than extending charity to our brother or sister in Christ. As long as we live in partiality, we live in sin. It is only by repenting and seeking a right relationship with Christ and living in peace and unity and allowing God to build us up by the power of His Holy Spirit that we have any hope at all. In Christ, we've been reconciled to God, dear brothers and sisters. Now I call on you to be reconciled to one another by that same redemptive power of Christ's sacrifice. This morning, I want to break from tradition uh, for our altar call. Uh, we're going, to, we're going to sing through the song one time, um, but I would like us to enter into a time of prayer, confession, and repentance. Um, we will remain here as long as anybody needs. Uh, Scott and Travis and myself will be up here to pray with you if you need. Um, 
as we as we finish our business i i just ask that you keep talking to uh, a minimum you know if you want to visit with somebody please by all means uh, reach out to them out in the uh, foyer area um but we want this time to be a time of reverence and a time of seeking the Lord individually and spending time in prayer. And as you're ready, um, you can get up and leave as you're done dealing with God, but we'll keep the altar open as long as there's somebody that is needing to come forward. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you. And Lord, we confess that there are times when our own preferences are held above others. And for that, Lord, we confess and we we are desiring to change our hearts. Change our hearts, Lord. Help us to recognize that it is more important for us to look out for the interests of others than to look out for our selfish interests. Help us, Lord, to recognize that you desire your people to come together in love, compassion, building one another up, encouraging one another, challenging one another. Lord, I just pray that you help us as we go forward as a church to live in a way that glorifies and honors you. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you examine our hearts, see if there is any unrighteous way in us so that we might confess and deal with that here and now this morning before another moment goes by. Lord, I lift all these things up to you and pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen.